I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out at a wardrobe door But I Hello and welcome to another studious episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we carefully lay our hands on some fresh young adult fiction and hope it doesn't bite. On alternate episodes, we read some young adult fiction that is a little more vintage, but not too vintage, mind you, though some crusty-ass tomes like Little Women have slipped through on occasion. Oh, shush. <laughs> my name is Laurie and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the bodacious Bree. Hello. And the cooler-than-cool beans, Keith Rowe. Cool beans. 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 (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping I was going to be bodacious there a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) This episode, we're tackling a book that follows a scholarship student into a challenging new world. Not a fantastical world, more's the pity, but into a prestigious Australian private girls' school. It's called Lorinda, written by Australian Alice Pung, published in 2014 and published in the US as Lucy and Lynn, L-I-N-H. Before we turn our gaze towards those hallowed halls of the titular school, a warning. It would be very hard to spoil this book because so much of it is a journey of self-reflection. The journey, however, does have some significant landmarks and turns in the road that might be best discovered on your own. If spoilers aren't your thing, then I pray ye pause, take a day or two to read Miss Pong's take on modern private school machinations and manipulations, and come back to us. If you're ready now for the field notes and spoilers ahoy hoy, we'll continue with a reading of page one by Keith Rowe. Dear Lynn, remember how we used to catch the 406 bus after school, past the Victory Carpet Factory and the main hub of Sunray, through to Stanley? What an adventure we used to think then. What a waste of time, looking back now. It was a waste of time because a bus would always worm its way back to Stanley, following exactly the same route, stopping at the same places and collecting the same people who did the same things every day. Remember that girl from St Clair's who put her bag on the seat next to her so that no one else could sit down, and how we thought typical of girls like that? When she got the vibe that we were talking about her behind her back, she turned around and told us to get stuffed. But that wasn't the most shocking thing about her. The most shocking thing was that where we had expected to see white teeth all even like a picket fence, they were herded behind that ugly gate in her mouth. Looking into that paddock of crumbly yellow rocks, straining to break free from barbed wire, I thought, no wonder you're going back to Stanley. I don't remember what you saw on those bus trips, but this is how I see it now. An old strip of seven shops, each with an identical metallic snake of a roller shutter coiled at the top. At night, With those iron blinds lowered, the street looks like a long, continuous, dirty warehouse, all graffiti and concrete. There we are. Great job. Thank you, Keith. That's an interesting page one for me. It's chock-a-block full of almost real Australian imagery, and I think it shows a lot of promise. I've given up on trying to guess what, you know, our friend Patrick Moon thinks about rock-rollicking starts, but I think it's safe to say that the lengthy exposition wouldn't be in his top ten, but I'm fine with it for now, so long as the drama or humour gives it some punch down the track. 
Bree, did it push your buttons? I'm a bit like you, Laurie. I really like the way that it was transporting me to suburban... Well, I, I saw suburban Melbourne out somewhere in the west and I like where this is heading, but I do... I do appreciate, similarly to Mr. Moon, a more obvious hook, and I haven't got that yet. I'm interested to see where it's going, but there's just no hint of what's to come yet. Mm. Keith? Yeah, a bit like you, I appreciate that there's not really an obvious hook that's been presented to us yet, but in books like this, you really need to let them have a bit of time to build the world and to uncover the story. It's a drama, it's not an action. Mm. It's tough to judge on one page, but I'm interested. I think because of the way that it's written, that they kind of get away with it because it's written as a letter to this person, Lynn. Yeah, I guess that's the question the first page asks, who's this Lynn that she's writing to? Mm, so maybe that is the hook. Yeah. Mm. Bree, let's ensure the listeners are fully appraised of how Lucy's life progresses with a quick synopsis. 15-year-old Lucy Lam, daughter of immigrant Chinese-Vietnamese parents, wins an equal access scholarship and is thrust into the privileged world of Lorinda, an elite girls' school. This one's told as a series of letters from Lucy to this unknown other, who we do discover who she is. The unknown other is called Lynn. And Lucy makes observations about her first year at this privileged school, the world itself, her classmates, and all of their interactions with teachers, her family and her home life, and her sense of self. Of particular note is what's known as the Cabinet, a trio of Lorindans who are academically astute, filled with self-importance, and yet they have the ear of some of the teachers. Despite their penchant for sometimes cruel, uh, they call them pranks, the other students still strive to be accepted by them. Lucy's struggle is not understood by her parents, who are a factory worker and a seamstress who works from the family garage. And this version of herself struggles to remain relevant and retain a voice in the face of the pressures of her new environment. Great. How much did you know about Lorinda before you chose it, Bree? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I did my usual, oh gosh, got to pick a contemporary book. Google contemporary book, Google Australian authors, Google female Australian authors, contemporary young adult fiction and see what came up. And this one actually piqued my interest for many reasons. So I wasn't born in the noughties or even in the 90s, but this one is pretty firmly set in the 80s and 90s, so that called out to me. But it really was sealed when I saw that John Marsden had called this one as sharp as serpent's fangs. And we've all read in a previous episode, Tomorrow When the War Began, written by another excellent Australian author, John Marsden, and the fact that he took the time to review this one and gave it to me, a bitingly good review. <laughs> I thought, why not give it a go? Plus, it's not fantasy. So, there you go. Ticked all those criteria. Yeah, when you get the chance to choose, it's probably wise to choose non-fantasy. Yes, we get enough. So, try and choose something a bit drama. But it's also the fact that I went to a private girls' college for secondary. So, that one I identified with. I was like, hmm, wonder if other people had similar experiences. We'll see. I went to a private girls' school. <laughs> to pick up my girlfriend. <laughs> uh, what did you think, Laurie? Well, a couple of disclaimers before I kick off my thoughts. I read a good portion of this book while pretty ill, and perhaps much like the resulting mucus, my reading might have been a little coloured by that illness. Oh, stop <laughs> it. 
That's just gross. Nobody needs to hear about it. <laughs> also, I went to a public school, which was more than a satisfactory experience from an educational perspective. And whilst this book made no effort to glorify private schools, you do tend to form a bit of if-only jealousy slash bias against private schools in one's youth. One of my dearest friends from adolescence was a private schoolgirl, and though she was one of the few rocks in my turbulent teens, I did always note her swanky Cal Rossi Anglican school uniform and feel jealousy both in the forms of admiration and resentment. Did you really? Yeah, I did. They had a really sharp uniform. And not that, you know, I had no desire to dress in women's clothing. But, <laughs> yeah, looking at their uniform, like my school didn't even have blazers at that point, I'm pretty sure, except for the school captains. Weren't the blazers one of the cliques in the school? Well. <laughs> <laughs> I used to look at all of those public school kids and think, gosh, I would love to be able to tie my jumper around my waist. I would love to be able to have hair that didn't touch my collar that I was allowed to let run free down my back. I would love to be able to not have to wear a navy blue or a dark forest green hair tie in my hair and earrings that actually showed some personality and a skirt that wasn't three centimetres below the knee. And these are not jokes. These are rules. <laughs> You know what? I was so impressed with the private school blazers that when I reached, was it year 11? No, it must have been year 12. I actually convinced the school to reintroduce them for the prefects. And eventually, I think it went to all seniors. We were given the option of wearing blazers. So, Oh, my goodness. I left my public school a little classier than when I started <laughs> at it. <laughs> you can really identify with Lucy then because she had the same effect on her school. Yeah. Hmm. I really don't know where to begin with the book itself. Maybe with the things I liked. The view through the peephole into the lives of recent Australian immigrants, I love that stuff. I grew up in the country and my exposure to non-Anglo-Saxon culture was pretty limited, unfortunately. Having authentic feeling characters, settings, particularly when they're against a snapshot of Australian history like the 90s, or even just a snapshot of a particular family's existence, I guess, is really interesting to me. Anything that gives me a broader perspective about the trials, joys and experiences of families from different backgrounds is a good chance for me to understand my country a bit better and myself a bit better. I wish the book had spent more time looking at the family because I think Pung's voice really sings in that area. Speaking of which, the, the prose is actually quite good at times too, although it did seem to suffer a little bit with overuse of similes and metaphors. As a whole, though, I didn't love Lorinda. The revelation slash major plot twist was just a little bit twee for my liking. I guess I'll give it away now, so if anyone's avoiding spoilers, here's your second and final chance. It turns out that Lucy's pen pal Lynn, the one she admires so much for her strength and honesty, the person she slowly outgrows and leaves behind, the person... That, at one point, if you'll excuse my public schoolboy tongue, cracks the shits with Lorinda and the cabinet and lets rip. Well, Lynn was Lucy all along, her old self, the person she used to be before she, in my opinion, only weakened as a character, became less interesting and found, quote-unquote, strength in learning how to appear to fit in and taking on the pretense of being a part of everything she hated about Lorinda. 
But that was until the end. Yeah, no, but I feel like the whole book was a diminishment of the Lin strength and a movement towards Lucy just hiding in the shadows and avoiding conflict. I'm not sure that I agree with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the whole book was her learning to embrace those two sides of herself, learning to embrace how to be her own individual amongst the challenges of this institution amongst the things that are thrown at her from all of these institutionalized girls who are really just going through the motions they're having everything handed to them on a silver platter this girl actually has to fight for it she has to learn how to survive and yet maintain a sense of her own identity and her own self in amongst that I feel that she grows as a character because of it. Oh, you won't like my next notes because they're even harsher. <laughs> I was glad to see that she weakened the mean girls, I mean Cabinet's power, by the <laughs> end. But as a central character, I thought she was a blushing, guilt-complex-ridden, apologetic sycophant. <laughs> that's what I wrote no, down. <laughs> that's, I really disagree with that. I, I really disagree with that. For me, this is actually about the power of the introvert. While she was withdrawn from the situations and didn't act out against many of them. She wasn't approving of them. No. And she had this quiet strength, this quiet sense of watching everything around her and learning how it all worked and observing. And that, to her, was power. That gave her this power to not care in the end what the cabinet thought or did she didn't have to conform to what they wanted she just was her own person and that was her strength yeah i thought that transition to self-confidence though that supposed growth was just a bit underwhelming and diffused i didn't really feel like a major shift in her character and i felt disappointed that's the beauty of it that was the power of it to me that was Absolutely beautiful. I really enjoyed it. I agree with a lot of Laurie's sentiment, actually, but I do agree with you there, Brie, that the understatement of the final speech in particular, for me, I enjoyed. Mm. We didn't need to have her be transformed suddenly, but we just needed to see enough of the transformation to know that she was heading in the right direction. But what was the right direction? Like those last lines, and I should have them here in front of me, but I don't, were something like, I don't have to do everything they say. I just have to have the appearance of doing so. That's not the sentiment I got from that speech. Mm. I agree. To me, and obviously you both have a different rating, but to me it felt that her solution to her problems was to pretend to fit in and appease them, but not evoking real change. No, so I'll read it to you. She's just saying goodbye to Lynn. So she's saying goodbye to the person that she was. And there were things about Lynn that maybe wouldn't have stood the test of time either if she's got these ambitions and she wants to go on and go to university and make herself a better life for herself and her family. But she says, goodbye, my constant friend. I'm grateful that I carry a little piece of Stanley with me wherever I go, wherever I end up. So that to me is her taking that experience and that sense of self and her family and the struggles they've had and her relationship with her baby brother and that's her taking that little piece of her wherever she goes forward, not getting rid of it entirely and shirking it. Oh, no, it wasn't that part actually that I had issue with. I quite liked that part. Keith, you had something to say. Go on. Her speech at the graduating ceremony was really powerful. So she had pre-written a speech that had been approved by the faculty 
and partway through she decided to give a heartfelt speech about her own experiences there and to me that was really the ending of the book and the development of her character was shown there. I agree. There's some really excellent quotes from that. I won't give too many of them but just the final part of that speech. So for me leadership is about building your own character before you start influencing anyone else. To be a true leader I think you must first learn what it is like to follow even if it means squatting on the ground with a toddler to look at old things in a new way. And to follow without losing your own moral compass, you have to know yourself and appreciate where you came from. My name is Lucy Lynn Lamb. Thank you for listening. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that whole speech was of that vein and was really quite good because it was believable, it wasn't over the top. And people in the audience received it in different ways. The so-called mean girls received it as confirmation that they were the leaders of the school. Whereas some of the others in the audience, with their subtle sort of responses to things she was saying, were in a way appreciating that she was bringing about change in the school. It might have been unknown to the mm. cabinet and the teaching faculty or some of them. But just the acknowledgement of some of the, the lesser known lights in the school was a change from the established system. Mm. It's interesting that we sort of came away with slightly different perspectives. I feel like she definitely developed as a character. I just, I don't know, the strength that I expected in the end was a little bit more diffused than I think I have seen in other books, and that was a bit disappointing for me. So I actually felt the same at first as well. I read it a few weeks ago, so I went back and I reread the last chapter to just reacquaint myself with it, and that's where it nailed home the developments in her character a little more. Mm. For me, I've just recently read... Oh, in the last year anyway, I've read Quiet by Susan Cain, The Power of Introversion, basically. And it talks about all of these incredibly powerful moments in history, for example. Rosa Parks, who sat on that bus in the white seats, and she basically started the, the reversal of the black laws in America and on her own. And she was, a, all accounts, a very quiet woman. She just had this internal strength that gave her this ability to perform this feat, which she just refused to give up her seat to a white person. That power in quietness and gentleness and observation and choosing your moment, I just found that really beautiful because I'm not quiet at all, <laughs> but I can certainly appreciate it. I'm brash and I'm loud and quite <laughs> opinionated, shocking to all of you who've met me, but I just appreciate it. Some of my best friends are the strongest people that I know and they're introverted. Yeah, another quote. But teachers like Miss Vanderwerp and Mr. Sinclair showed me that good leadership does not necessarily mean loudly stamping your boots. Hmm. Perfect. Yep. It's the subtlety that I liked. All right. Fair points. Lastly, as the son of two school teachers, it was a minor irritation that all of the teachers in the book are in some way robbed of their power by the end of the book. Pung tries to humanise the teachers at later stages a bit more, but while I don't think that any of the events are improbable, in fact, versions of these events that happened in the books did happen in my school, <laughs> slightly tweaked versions of them, but it'd be nicer if the author had left at least one teacher unsullied, one sort of nice guiding star of a teacher, but I felt that all of them were flawed or weakened by the students in some ways. Except for Mrs. Gray. Well, really? Yeah, she comes out on top. I feel like she almost plays them all in some way. Mm, I don't know. It depends whether or not you accept the premise that she could foresee that maybe Lucy would change the power of the cabinet. 
But if that is not true, then she basically accepted the cabinet for a long time. I don't think that's what she was looking for. I think she was just looking for Lucy to grow in and of herself and not to worry about all of the crap that's going on. And I also think that Mrs Grey is a leader in her own right. She's showing her teachers how to behave, how to deal with some of these situations and how to not just fall prey to stupid idiotic pranks that they should be above. Yeah, I don't see any good reason to keep the cabinet in power though. The cabinet being these three mean girls, in case you're lost Mm. listeners. They were in power for a long time and doesn't the book sort of suggest a bit like mean girls that there's always a cabinet? But there always is. I would say in private girls' schools there always is. Mm, Crush them like worms. (laughs) They're not necessarily the the leaders of the school, the cabinet. They might be just other influential people that come together for whatever reason, love, money, whatever it is. Mm. Every school has, it's not a trio, it might be a quartet, it might be eight people. There's always that group. Right. But Grey wasn't a teacher in the end, though, was she? Wasn't she the headmistress? Yep. Yes. I do wonder as well whether it was an intentional decision to sort of paint teachers in that way because, remember, these are Year 10 students and you have that relationship mm. with teachers. You see them outside of school and it's, oh, she's a real person or he's a real person. It's a disconnect between teachers and people. Yeah. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, my point, I guess, was that most students or at least most good students <laughs> have at least one teacher that's positive in their school experience. They have one particular teacher that they look up to and respect more than the others. And in this book, you didn't really see any of those stick around. Everyone was hamstrung or abused in some way. So that was a bit weird. Lucy did call out too that to her had been a good example of leadership and teaching in her final speech. Yeah, one of which had to resign due to stress leave. Stress. And and the other one that had to change his passionate way of teaching to a a stricter formal method because of the shenanigans of the group. He was in a difficult position, though. Mm. Did he have to change or did he choose to change? I'm not sure. I feel like he just took the easy way out in some ways. Yeah, okay. Lorinda just didn't work for me. I was really optimistic about it and there were flashes of brilliance, but it eventually came to a point where I just decided... That sometimes when you're trying to stand on the shoulder of giants, whether that giant be looking for Ella Brandy or even, ugh, mean girls, <laughs> then sometimes you just end up standing in their shadows. It lacked the comedy of both, and for me, and it sounds like you both had a different experience, but for me there was never really any satisfaction gained from the drama. Look, all that sounds pretty damning, and it's true I didn't get much from the book, but Lucy does make an excellent point, quoting E.H., Gombricks, The Story of Art. It is infinitely better not to know anything about art than to have the kind of half-knowledge which makes for snobbiness. The danger is very real. And with that, I wish to suggest that while it didn't speak to me, it's entirely possible that the flaw was with me in this particular case, rather than the book, and that particularly for the demographic for which this book was written, I think there's a lot of value in exploring it to form your own opinion. Bree, I'm hoping that having lived a 1990s high school experience, (laughs) you might have an improved view of the book. I did find this one really easy to read. Mm. (laughs) I was hooked within a few pages. So despite those first few lines that Keith read out earlier, for me, it came a little bit further on with mentions of Samboy Chips, Redskins and 7-Up, which are all straight out of my demographic and my preferred vintage. 
In some ways, it's a study of my teenage years because I did go to the private girls' school and I found that the narrative was really well served by the format. So those letters that meant that the detail of the story, which was presented in descriptions and thoughts rather than in lengthy exchanges between characters, I found that beautiful. Mm. And Lucy is this quiet observer who shares her thoughts liberally about everything going on around her. And I guess this respect to the main character is what struck me most because she's certainly not to be underestimated. I also found it an interesting examination of the effect of the Institute on the individual. So one of the examples I'll call out there is the perception of the attractive or the cute guy. So she makes a note that the private school boys that the girls tend to find attractive are not necessarily the ones that are actually the most physically attractive. So they see them through different lenses. They see them through lenses of intelligence and family linkages and lineage and those sorts of things, not necessarily physical attractiveness. And I found that very interesting and it sort of made me think back to when I was in year 10 and there was this particularly attractive person. But when I actually look at him, he had this huge bent nose and you just think, why? Why was he the person that was the the one? Was it because he was the tall one? Who knows? What were his family connections like, Bree? <laughs> Luke Wilson was his brother. <laughs> Too long ago. We're talking 20-something his years. His surname was Packer. Oh, right. <laughs> I wasn't that high school. <laughs> Another example is the way that she conducts herself quietly at this school. You don't get that impression from the start that she is so quiet at Stanley High School, or where is she? Christdale Saber. She's at a Catholic girls' school beforehand. You get the feeling that she's more comfortable in that environment and she's able to be more outwardly open. So I found that that effect of the institution and the lenses that people see you interesting. Yeah, I think Alice Pung comments on that and it sort of says that the identity you form is tied into the school itself. And she was someone that went to, I think, five mm-hmm. high schools and found herself adopting a different position in each one. And that was something that was intentional, I think, in this book. Mm, I guess that makes sense. You've got different expectations placed on you. And here Lucy's got the expectation of her family to study to a point, to participate in school life to a point. She certainly doesn't participate in the Saturday morning sports, which is expected. And it's right throughout she's receiving these reminder notices that she has to attend the Saturday morning sports and those sorts of things. So, yeah, that was interesting too. It was uncomfortable to read through my lens on occasion, and by that I mean middle-class Anglo-Australian. And it was challenging to look back at my own college experiences with predominantly Caucasian classmates Were we like the cabinet? Were we elitist? Probably. Were we nasty? Occasionally. Were we blazer-wearing, supercilious little bitches, terrorising teachers and students alike? Probably not quite that bad, I don't think. But the same intent and some arrogance, I would say. And I say we being the collective we. (laughs) Peer pressure has a lot to say about these things and... I think we could all learn a little something from Lucy and her ability to withstand that and to be her own sense of self. I liked it. Keith. Thank you. Like Laurie, I can't really identify closely with private school girls or private schools 
in general, so I'm seeing it like him as a bit of an outsider. But it was interesting. It did fill in some of the blanks. You were in a halfway house, though, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> I was public. You were selective. Yes. And Brie was private. So we did have blazers. I didn't have to introduce them. My enjoyment of this book, it ebbed and flowed as it went. It never really reached a high pinnacle or it never really troughed out at something that I wasn't enjoying at all. That's some horrible metaphors mixing there. Oh, that's appropriate to the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's why I did it, obviously. <laughs> and I'll talk about plot points, about the writing, about all sorts of bits and pieces when I go through what I liked and didn't like about it. What would you guys like first? Likes, Likes. please. That way we can crush the spirits of everyone listening that loved the book by the end of the episode. <laughs> I won't do that. I like the way that this opportunity for Lucy was an opportunity wrapped in an obligation that by the end of the book revealed itself as an opportunity for her to grow. That was quite nice. And it's an important theme in young adult books that opportunity is presented at times of crisis and it's not always easy to improve yourself or to improve your situation, but it's worth it. As we touched on when Brie was talking about it, I did also like the way that it showed really effectively in my reading how your environment can shape not only other people's perception of you, but also your perception of yourself, particularly when you're in those those young sort of impressionable years. You see yourself not only through your own life, but through the perceptions of other people and you feel maybe an obligation to fulfill other people's beliefs as opposed to pave your own. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Really well said, yep. So they're the things I liked. Now, there's a few things I was unsure about. One of them was the fleeting inclusion of a love interest for Lucy. It didn't add a lot to the story and it wasn't particularly believable for me. And it was awkward. It was a bit awkward, yeah. But that's what teenage exchanges are like. Mm, some of us are much smoother. <laughs> I felt that that was fairly accurate for 15-year-olds at private schools, that you do have those awkward exchanges. It was entirely believable. Okay. And I liked that it wasn't the focus of the story and I yeah. liked that there was just hints throughout. It wasn't the the be-all and end-all of it. Yeah, that's what I really liked about that and I was about to get to that, that it was good that that wasn't mm. a major plot point. It wasn't about... A boy, effectively, which a lot of young adult books for teenage girls, they go in that direction. This avoided mm. it quite well. So, I guess, yeah, you couldn't really have a story about private school girls without having at least some kind of boy action in there. And this was maybe an inclusion just for the sake of it. It felt a bit like that to me. And maybe like private school girls, and this is only my perception from the outside, that the encounters with boys are a bit like that. They are a bit fleeting because of the sporadic opportunities you have to mingle with them. So, is, Yes, is, it's true. Is it true? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sporadic and highly orchestrated, such as dancing classes. Uh, just imagine. Did you do click go this year's? <laughs> oh, similarly. You used to have to stand around the, the big hall and it was like, yeah, it was like line dancing in some Heel ways. And <laughs> <laughs> Dance with one and then you move on to the next. But of course, there was always far fewer guys than girls. So you'd end up dancing with girl, girl, girl. Oh, there's a bloke. <laughs> He's 10 foot shorter than me. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> That's bringing back some memories. 
Yeah, there were all those those moments of desperation to get to the really cute girl, <laughs> and the misery of being stuck with the alternative, <laughs> uh, and vice versa, gender wise. I'm sure. Mm, yes, indeed. So a few other things that I had mixed feelings on were the battle for power, the battles for power, I should say, because that was a central theme of the book, really. And it was a battle on many fronts. You had the teachers working for their position in the school, particularly the younger and the newer teachers and Miss V, who was ostracized in some ways by other teachers at times. And the students, of course, that battle for power. And it was one where Lucy took an alternate approach and there were signs of a victory towards the end, but yeah, it was kind of mixed. Hmm. The lamb, her little brother, I was really worried hmm. about him for a while because he kept popping up and he was the undersized lamb and then he had a cough and I was really worried that he would develop cancer and die or something to that effect. So I was really hoping that didn't happen. It did seem like they were setting him up for the fall, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, and he did have a fall. It was quite a major fall, I guess, but he moved on quite well from it. How did you feel about how he was kept? Yeah. Uh, so, he would spent most of his day in the garage where uh, Lucy's mother worked. In a cardboard box <laughs> in the garage well, as a 10 or 12-month-old. He was walking, I think. Hmm. Yeah. And, and the fall that Keith referred to was the fact that at one stage he had an asthma attack and almost died because of the strong chemical odours coming from the material that she worked with as a seamstress. Hmm. So is this just me looking at it through my lens or is this an acceptable practice? <laughs> I think it was tough conditions for the family and that's just the only mm. alternative they had. And do you agree, Keith, that perhaps when the child worker came along and said, you need to clear this out, this is not healthy for the child, they, they reacted pretty well to it? Mm, well enough. <laughs> 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 There's no ill intent. Clearly a loved member of the family for all of them. They just didn't know mm. differently. I'll talk about the things I disliked now. I lacked attachment to Lucy because I didn't really like her that much. Now, I didn't dislike her by any stretch of the imagination, but I found her a bit withdrawn and disconnected at times. And that's probably just her coping mechanisms for being in the new school. But that just, for me, it was a bit of a barrier to embracing her as a character. And I really love to do that. You wanted to go into bat for her. You wanted her to do something to earn it. Yeah. Or just maybe some more depth. The internal monologue we saw from characters in, in other books, even, you know, The Hunger Games is one in particular and also Divergent, I found them more engaging. Mm. Yeah, or even in Finding Audrey, where she's the ultimate introvert, mm. even she had a more, I don't know, more depth, I think, to her internal monologue. I don't know if this is what you're saying at all, Keith, but I found Lucy's to be very passive and, I don't know, just a bit boring maybe. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I agree. It was a bit bland. It didn't have the punch and the reality that you would expect when you're going behind the curtains like you are. Mm. In certain passages, it felt like it had been a bit dumbed down. They talk about Miss V and implied why she was called that, but didn't actually spell it out. And also the Growler, they didn't spell out precisely the reason for her nickname, but they implied it. That's the way it's done. That's the way it's done in terms of calling her that. But when Lucy had the revelation as to what the origins of the name were, she didn't fully reveal them. Mm. Yeah, but that's the way it's done at private schools. You don't necessarily acknowledge things head on. You just skirt around them until everybody has a mutual understanding and then you move on. I feel like that's almost her uh, taking on some of those institutions. 
it's hard after reading something like Goodnight, Mr. Tom, where there was no filter mm. when we got everything. Stark difference. That's right. It feels like it's kind of been dumbed down or it's been filtered a bit before we receive it. And when you're reading a book about the internal struggle someone goes through, you want to see it manifest itself fully. And if we're going with the metaphor of Lynn being the rougher, bolder type character and she's writing the letter to that character, then maybe Lynn would have appreciated a bit more from Lucy. <laughs> Actually, maybe we wanted to hear back from Lynn. Yeah. As opposed to just from Lucy because Lucy was the controlled personality and Lynn was the one that would have told it like it is. Can I hijack you for a minute, Keith, just while we're on the topic of Lucy versus Lynn? There's one line in the book where Lucy says that she didn't want to go into the shops because she didn't want to run into Lynn. I went back and reread a few of those parts because the whole idea, obviously, is she's writing to a former self. I thought it was Paul writing then to say that she might physically run into her old self. If he was saying if she's running into her old friends. Mm. That's what it is. For me, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. I kind of suspected from early on, very early on, that Lynn was in fact her. Mm. And I just Mm. felt that that's... Exactly right. She didn't want to be confronted with those memories of what she had been. She was in the throes of trying to figure out this world of privilege and parties and nonsense, and she just didn't want those stark reminders of where she'd been and what she'd come from. I agree with that. But to say I didn't want to go into the shops because I didn't want to run into you, Lynn, that just seemed to break the metaphor's power a little bit. Oh, I liked it. I felt like that everybody around that she would bump into at the shops would remind her of what she had come from and what she was, maybe. Yeah. Bumping into her mum's friend who tells her how much smarter she must be than her other daughter who didn't win the scholarship and bumping into the people who sell her the meat and bumping into, you know, all of these reminders of her past. That is Lynn. That is her past. Mm. You can spin it both ways, I guess. It might have been thrown in there to knock you off the scent a little bit. Mm. From the start, for me, it was like, okay, who's this Lynn? And I wondered at first whether she dies at some point in the book and that's why these letters are being written to someone who's already passed. And then as it went on and there was no contact with Lynn or no real references to her that were palpable, then it dawned on me that, okay, Lynn is Lucy. Mm. wasn't a huge part of the story, I didn't think. It added a bit of depth to it but you could have taken that out and maybe we would have seen more of the unfiltered side of lucy Mm. yeah yeah sorry to hijack go on the mean girls they felt a little too archetypal there was more than a hint that they were basically born into that world and those roles so they could have explored maybe a little more using lucy's experience to give them a different perspective and maybe to realise that it wasn't necessary of them to behave that way. They didn't really get the opportunity to do that. They were kind of a little two-dimensional as a result. Mm. It's funny because I think that wasn't the intention because I read a Q&A from Alice and she says, I did not want the cabinet to be vacuous mean girls, but the sort of pressure cooker girls you would meet at a private school who must be on top of things all the time. And yet, whose worlds are so tightly wound that any threat to their order would ignite them. And I hope readers come away with an understanding that those girls are as much victims of institutional and familial insularity as they are cruel. And I definitely got the cruel bit, but the insularity, you understood that that was there, but they didn't feel like victims. That side wasn't explored enough, in my opinion. I agree with that. If that's the way that she was intending them to be, I agree that they didn't come across as victims so much. Institutionalised or shaped by the way 
they'd been brought up, shaped by their families and their mothers and their expectations, absolutely, but not to the same extent as Alice is clearly trying to get it. Yeah, it was a bit of a miss there. One other thing that annoyed me was the lack of involvement of her parents in her life at Lorinda, and it was her decision for that, and I understand completely the reasons why she kept them so separate, but it really led to many complications for her in both her personal and her private school life. kind of proved itself to be a short-sighted decision. Did it, though? I thought, particularly with regards to the sport, that that was a good decision because if her parents had known that she was receiving letters from the school saying, you must do this sport to fit in sort of thing, then they would have forced her to do so. And A, that's inconvenient from a financial perspective because they're not very well off at all and there was a lot of money involved apparently in the school uniforms of which there were 12 separate pieces or something. And B, it then doesn't allow her to make the decision later on that she wants to move forward and participate in her own way kind of thing. It it would rob her of the decision if her parents forced that upon her. Yeah, I was thinking more the other way, that she should have been telling the school at one point, okay, I can't participate in Saturday school sport because I have a family obligation that I need to fulfil. Yes, I agree with that perspective. And that doesn't mean that she'll have to inconvenience her family in any way. On the family side of things, it was more that she just didn't seem to tell them anything. She kept it entirely secretive. I think that's because of the way that she's had to live her life to this point. I mean, it talks about how she's always had to translate for her mother, go to banks, Medicare, do all of those family personal administration things that as a child, you don't have to do that for your parents. You just live your life as a child. Your parents have the language skills and the ability to go and sort out their life administration themselves. So... They don't care about those things for her. That's not part of their world. That's not part of their sphere, if that makes sense. But do you think it's robbing them of the ability to change their perceptions if you just completely leave them out? Their perceptions are their perceptions. That's the way they are. They're happy that way. They don't necessarily need to adopt something new. Or they don't have the time Mm. because they're too busy providing for her so that she's got these opportunities. Mm. Yeah. But I just thought she could have involved her parents in her life a little more than she did. Mm. I like the scenes with her and her mother and her dad, but I thought she didn't really develop the parents as all those characters onto themselves. They were just the canvas on which Lucy was painted. I have to make some comparisons after reading this book, and I'm sure you all made the same comparisons because we've read some books that are very similar in that they're set in 1990s Australia. There wasn't the warmth or the depth of characters and the multi-dimensions to the story that we had in Looking for Ali Brandy, and there wasn't as much happening as there was in Tomorrow When the War Began. Both of those were, I think, exceptional at character exposition, whereas this didn't quite get there. It tried to, but it didn't quite get there for me on that front. Mm. It wasn't varied enough. I just would have liked to have seen more from the parents and some of the other girls and give them a chance to develop their characters rather than just be bit parts in the central story. It might have been that there was too many characters because there were a lot of the girl students that were named and had parts to play, but... I didn't walk away particularly liking or disliking any of them in particular. They were just a bit grey and diffuse for me. They did sort of meld in together. They were clearly defined as having different roles in the cabinet if we're just talking about the three in the cabinet, Amber, Chelsea and Brody. but they kind of... God, even the names are... (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> they kind of merged into just a single entity, and maybe that was intentional, I don't know. But, yeah, I just didn't think it had the depth of characters outside of Lucy. And Lucy as well, I don't think she quite got there. But I do love that this is an example of the diversity of modern Australia. And books like this will find an audience that identifies with characters, and they need to be written and they need to be read. So I'm really glad that we read this. Hmm. Well said. Hmm. Okay, so, Keith, thank you for that. Uh, what I won't thank you for too much <laughs> is the fact that you asked us to watch Mean Girls in preparation for this episode. Um, <laughs> so I did. Well, why did we watch it, Keith? Okay, there's two reasons for that. The first being that having completed the story, I read the thank you notes from the author and she made reference to watching Mean Girls as a reward with her partner after finishing the book. To me, that called to that being a piece of reference material. Uh, the other being that it's one of those movies that I've known about for quite a while and never watched because it's Mean Girls. I felt like I'm not inside the demographic for it. And this was maybe an excuse to watch something that's been well-received that I otherwise wouldn't. I guess that's my experience as well, that I had heard of Mean Girls but had no intention of watching it because of the intended demographic. <laughs> hmm. Had you seen it, Brie? No, and I still haven't. Sorry, guys. Okay, well, what did you think, Keith? I really liked it, I have to say. Ah. <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. It was really well written in my estimation from a comedic position. It wasn't anything new. It wasn't covering new ground and it wasn't particularly powerful, but it was funny. And it shows that you don't need to have a twist or a different take on things. You just need to execute well. And this really executed well, in my opinion. Laurie, I don't think you agree. What did you think of it? Well, I've been accused off air of being a grumpy old man, <laughs> which I find pretty funny. <laughs> Laughter and silliness is not dead in my heart, Keith Rowe. I just think the humour in this movie was very time-sensitive and in the last 12 years it's not aged well. I thought it was predictable, vaguely racist and vaguely sexist. A B-grade effort all round. Hmm. Now, there were no particularly terrible actors or performances. It's just the script was either an abomination or intended for 15-year-old girls. So, <laughs> I mean, this movie has got... I'm sure, millions of fans, and, and they'll probably strongly disagree. And that's fair. Like, I understand exactly why it could be funny for people, but it just wasn't for me. Not every joke lands, that's for sure, but more landed than didn't with me. And the timing of the school being, I guess, in the late 90s, early noughties was relatable in a way. Mm. They're obviously caricatures in many ways, so you expect that with a comedy. And, yeah, I didn't go in judging with a very critical eye like it sounds you did, Laurie. The movie wasn't aimed at me. No, it was aimed at Keith. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> well, and I Pat. think you're right. <laughs> yeah, Patrick, who loved it, apparently. So, Brie, you should watch it just to round it out and see whether you're on the lorry or the Keith and Pat side. I'll give you an update next episode. You've got another segment for us, Keith. Yeah, I don't know if I'll call it a segment, just a discussion point. It's on the setting of Lorinda in the mid-1990s. Glorious period to be alive. <laughs> yes. Glorious time to be in school, which was perfectly matched to the three of us. And this is from Alice Pung. I deliberately set the story before there was social media and cyberbullying for three reasons. The first is that young adult readers are the most discerning and astute audience you'll ever have. 
They can tell a false note a mile away. So if I set the book in contemporary times and got cultural references wrong or tried to be with it in relation to social media, they would know I was trying way too hard. Secondly, I wanted the girls to demonstrate their nastiness in person, physically face-to-face. There's a certain kind of courage in this, like how soldiers used to fight wars, bayonet to bayonet. They could not hide behind drones. Finally, I wanted to cement Lucy's outsider status so the reader got a real sense of her complete alienation and disconnect from the school. I wanted the reader to hear her uninterrupted reflections on what this meant, to experience her working things out, thought by thought. This could definitely not be achieved if her inner monologue was constantly interrupted by her Facebook posts or tweets, which are never representative of a person's true state of mind anyhow, just symptomatic of temporary feelings. I found that really interesting, and it's not only a comment on her own comfort in setting the book in a time that she was familiar with, but also in the way we interact these days with social media and technology. And it raises some interesting questions as to whether technology and social media are serving to homogenize us in a way that removes access to some of the storytelling go-to plays. It has reaches beyond books into film and TV shows. Recent series like Stranger Things were set in the 1980s for quite similar reasons to Alice. And I wonder whether this will continue to be a trend or whether we'll see storytelling adapt to suit the changing environment of human interaction. What do you guys think about that? She's absolutely right. I mean, cyberbullying, it's too easy. I'm not at school anymore. It'd be really interesting to interview somebody who actually is at school to find out if there is this absolute reliance on online personas as opposed to -to face-to-face. And I shudder to think what it's going to be like raising two kids in the next sort of 10 to 15 years. Is it a bit like knitting? Is it going to come back into fashion that you don't use Facebook? (laughs) Are you going to stop using Facebook and Twitter because you get bored, there'll be something else to come forward or is this around to stay? I don't know. (laughs) This just in, guys, talking to people just like knitting. (laughs) this is coming from a hobby knittist who's just trying to be cool again (laughs) no i think it's here to stay and the world has forever shrunk unless we have some major technological calamity then this is the way going forward you know one thing i did think about keith when you were reading out that quote from alice well two things first thing is that alice has actually done a really good job of providing lots of helpful information for students which despite my criticisms of this particular book I really respect that she's sort of putting herself out there to help people that are actually studying the book the second point the actual quote itself the meat of the matter was that technology has really impacted not only the way people interact but the way you can tell stories Mm. some stories like horror films for example you think back at some of the movies you might have watched or books that you could have read and you thought, well, if they'd had a mobile phone, then all of these problems would have gone away. And it's interesting to see different ways that authors or scriptwriters deal with that these days. It's either, yes, we put ourselves back in the 80s or 90s like Lorinda or Stranger Things, back to the time before mobile phones were an option to call everyone and tell them there's an axe murderer nearby or a monster or whatever. Or they have to put in some kind of plot device like, oh, the mobile phone tower's down or there's a freak storm that's causing interference. And it's really interesting to see how traditional story genres like horror have to try and work around technology to try and maintain those traditions of storytelling. Mm. Even the recent adaption of Tomorrow When the War Began, 
the first thing that the enemy did was blow up the mobile phone tower so no one could call each other and quickly explain that they all had to run off, go bush and escape the invasion. Yeah, it does present a big challenge to writers. Hmm. And then the other side of that is when you were talking about reducing the size of the world, does it also manifest itself in reducing the size of the sphere that one interacts with, that we're finding ourselves increasingly drawn to only things that we're interested in to the exclusion of everything else, and that will lead to a lack of development of interest and character. Or have we always done that in some way as well? Well, we have, but we've not had the tools to do it so effectively. Hmm. I've never read the sports pages. I've always picked and chosen between which part of the newspaper that I'll pick up and read, and I do the same sort of thing now. I'd read the first few pages, skip to the world section, and then have a flick through the Sunday magazine. And now I do that online instead. (laughs) If you were to comment on one of those articles, you'd be commenting with people who were interested in the same thing, and you wouldn't be interacting with others. If we use that as just an example and you remove your interactions with people in the workplace and in Mm. social situations and you can sort of see how it's great at connecting people but it's also great at preventing connecting of people. Mm. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Mm. Like you're very right. I, for example, like watching ice hockey and there's very few people that I can talk to in my local area about ice hockey and I've got a friend, well, it's Patrick, that I talk to about hockey in Australia But if I really want to talk to people that are deeply passionate about hockey, then I go online. Anyway, I think we've gone well off track. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I zoned out. Sorry, Larry. (laughs) Why don't you bring us back to the score, Mr. Bates? All right. So it's scoring with me. One through five, one being the worst, five being the best. One, Queen Lamb, being illiterate would have been an advantage. Two, blue denim dye powder. Really got up your nose at times, but didn't kill you. <laughs> Three, Lynn, sometimes pretty great, but disappoints a little in the end. Four, Lucy, challenges convention, fights the system, and comes out in front. Or five, it's so fetch. That probably is lost on you, Bree, but hopefully Keith appreciates it. <laughs> uh, so one through five, Bree. Four. Four? But subtly. I loved it. I really, I absolutely smashed through this book. I thought it was elegantly done and was all about the quiet power of introversion in a chaotic and institutionalized world. And I really liked how identity soared. Keith? It scrapes into a three on the strength of. Scrapes in easily above a three. <laughs> it, okay, it's all right. Keith's time now. All right, you extrovert. all right. All right. <laughs> now he's scoring with Bree, where Bree scores for all of us. <laughs> uh, yeah, based on the strength of my rereading of the last section of the book, it gets to a three. Yeah, I didn't mind it, but as I said before, it's great that it's been written and there's an audience for it, and I hope it finds it. Well, for me, it was blue denim dye powder. Number two, really got up my nose at times, but it didn't kill me, and I think there's opportunity for other people to enjoy it a lot more than I did. So that's a two. Thank you, as always, for listening. Feel free to throw your opinion at us on Facebook or Twitter, at Seeking Tumnus. And it's been a little while since we've mentioned iTunes. If that's how you listen to us and you like what you hear, then a quick review, even just a one-liner, would really help others find us too. So thank you for those. Next episode, it's the young adult horror equivalent of The Matrix. Or is it Inception? No, actually, it's neither of those. 
We'll be reading the coming-of-age classic The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton, also a major motion picture of the same name, featuring an all-star cast and Tom Cruise. What? What? In the butt? (laughs) Until then, if you're struggling with dual personalities or are living a double life and it's all a bit stressful, then fear not. Because depending on how shitty your haircut is, one day you may hold aloft your magic sword and cry, Take it away, Keith! By the power of Grayskull! (laughs) Keep reading. I have the power! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bravo. My exposure to non-Anglo-Saxon... Saxon... <laughs> <laughs>